Welcome to the Shaping Champions podcast, a platform for discussion and exploration into what it takes to be a champion in life. We speak to athletes, entertainers, business people, and everyone in between about their journey and experiences, discovering the key ingredients needed to become successful at whatever it is you do. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Shaping Champions Podcast. Enjoy the show. So yes, it's back once again, the Renegade Podcaster, episode eight of Shaping Champions, and uh, it's going to be a really exciting one today. And as usual, you know, this is our platform for discussion and exploration into becoming elite, being the greatest version of yourself, and succeeding at whatever it is you do in life. My guest today is an experienced football administrator and operations manager with over nine years experience in the professional game. He's worked at the top level of the women's game at Liverpool and he's currently head of operations at Bristol City. I invited our guest onto the podcast today, not only for his professional credentials, but also because of how passionate he is about developing people and helping them to reach their full potential. Gives me great pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Paul Metheringham. How are you doing, Paul? Hi, Jimmy. Thank you very much for your kind words. Uh, fantastic to be here. Real pleasure. Oh, the pleasure is all ours for sure. So, Paul, I'm going to start where we usually do with this podcast. What does it mean to you to be a champion? It's a tough question to start off with there, Jimmy. Um, <laughs> how would you describe a champion? So f- for me personally, um, it's probably supporting um, others to sort of achieve their goals and objectives. Um, so I think everyone has a purpose in life and everyone has something that they're working for. Um, to be a champion at whatever level or whatever they would like to choose to do. And I see a, a, a champion um, as such is supporting that person to be able to achieve their goal in whatever it may be, whether it be relationships, whether it be work-based, whether it be general life. Um, yeah, so that's how I would see a champion. Amazing. It's, it's quite refreshing to hear such a, a selfless answer. You know, and if if you always had that that sort of motivation, Paul, to help others, I think I was very fortunate um, in growing up. Um, my my pa- I had a very good grounding in terms of my parents, um, who I probably didn't realise it at the time. Um, when you're going through your sort of teenage years, um, they helped me immensely. Um, they were completely selfless, as were my grandparents before. Um, and they did everything they could to make sure myself and my sister had uh, the very best opportunities. Um, and also with a, a probably a friendship group of exactly the same. Um, they were all very similar and all had very similar traits. And we all looked to help each other. Yeah, so a, f- a, fam- a fantastic springboard, like a great platform for sure, um, by the sounds of it. And Paul, I was looking through your sort of work, work in history and all of your experiences. And you've, you've held a variety of roles in different areas, including mentoring, operations, uh, work in both ladies and men's football. Um, what it made me think was, 
Do you think it's increasingly important to have experiences in different realms nowadays? And how do you think that's aided your journey? I think it's uh, really important to have sort of a diverse, probably knowledge or a diverse, um, probably experience going through things because it, it shapes who you are as a person. Um, and every experience that you that you go through, um, positive, negative, um, the challenges that we will have on a day-to-day -day basis certainly shape you as a person, um, certainly assist you and help you along your journey. And I would say a lot of skills will become transferable um, as you learn and as you go through. So every single skill that you pick up, um from all different facets of um of work life are all you know really really useful as you go on sure yeah and what are, what are the biggest challenges that you face paul or, or if there was one that sprang to mind that you felt you learned the most from i think whenever you go into um either an uncertain situation or, or a challenging situation um, where I wouldn't use the word crisis, but um, there were challenging circumstances at the time. And I think upon reflection, you learn so much in that particular time where you're literally thinking on your feet, you're reacting to sometimes volatile situations, to, to real challenging situations um i could probably think of a few off the top of my head where i've been um yeah i've been put in quite challenging situations but um when you sit back and you reflect afterwards they're, they're fantastic learning experiences mm. and they really do help you and assist you along the way and those lessons that you've learned from that point um really do help you in the future and was there one kind of trait or characteristic that you upon that sort of reflecting uh, practice or process that you saw in yourself that you thought that was integral in that challenging situation you know if I didn't have that trait or that ability that characteristic then things could have gone west I think you always have to remain really calm um in in terms of your exterior so it may be a case of you feel the pressure internally and you're trying to process something, but you you need to remain calm, especially for your thinking and to process um, your thoughts at that point. Because if you react emotionally, I think you'll make very, very emotional decisions. So probably remaining calm under pressure is, is the real key at that point. Um, yeah, to make him really good decisions. I feel like I'm grilling you here already, Paul. Um, but, but you know, you know, it's like I've asked one question and we, we've already gone down a, a really fascinating kind of rabbit hole um, that, that really interests me. So uh, this will be the last one on this, I promise. But is, how do you remain calm? Then is there a certain approach? Is there a certain technique, uh, psychological, internal practice or... Do you, is it just experience? I think it does come with experience. I think you get better with experience. 
but I think practicing being in difficult situations, um, being exposed to difficult situations, um, and then working in terms of your own personal development. So not only being exposed to those um, those really challenging situations, but also really reflecting on how you've done something. Um, and sometimes even once you're reflecting, getting away and getting outside of probably the situation you've been into. So whether it be, um, say, for example, getting away out in nature and just relaxing and just processing your thoughts and talking through them with experienced people and learning from, from some very experienced people. So going and learning in very volatile situations, whether it be potentially a customer service environment, um, a restaurant where the pressure is really on you, um, maybe a, a prison service, a um, behavioural unit, the, the emergency services, they're under pressure all the time, constantly. Um, so yeah, just learning from the very best people and taking into consideration what they do. I love it. You know, brings me back to or makes me think of that whole kind of pressure is a privilege thing and um, just how much development you can do when placed into those kind of situations and circumstances. Um, awareness was something that was coming up for me off the back of what you were saying. It sounds like there's a high level of emotional awareness around your kind of approach, perhaps. Yeah, I, I agree. You have to be very emotionally aware of what's going on in the situation, what's um, happening around you. I think you have to, when you are in those situations, is probably um, have a bit of an idea of the mode or the mood of around you, the people around you, how they're reacting, why they're reacting. Everybody comes in with, say, for example, today, we've met up, I don't know what kind of day you've had, you don't know what kind of day I've had, so you're not sure what's going on in the background of people's lives. So not being judgmental, um, being really respectful, and just being open in, in you know, trying to help that person, listen to that person. Yeah, brilliant. So we, we've discussed a little bit about your experiences and, and um, all the different kind of roles that you've that you've taken up and, and been a part of. What what eventually took you into football, Paul? So I was very uh, fortunate to play football um, growing up. Mum and dad supported me um, to play and it was a, a real passion of mine. Um, it was probably a, a big release for me, I would say, um, when I was younger. It was something I really, really enjoyed, the part of, you know, being part of a team, um, and all the probably positive things that you get from get from a team sport, I would say. So you, your teamwork, um, you're being under pressure again, probably at that mm. point. Um, the skill base of it, um, the physical fitness. So there was a and the majority side of things there that you took on that took you away from probably maybe the less fortunate people who've been 
had nothing to do and have gone out onto the streets and you know been stuck in um not being able to access those opportunities so i feel i was very fortunate at that point to play football and unfortunately i did pick up a few injuries whilst playing um and i always wanted to stay involved in football i'll be coaching i'll be operationally um and i was very very fortunate to to stay involved in football essentially once i finished playing got yeah 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 and is it as glamorous as it looks from the outside because you know so many people want to get into the industry want to be involved in the footballing world but you know is it, is it that exciting when you're when you're in it um it as i say it's been a lifelong passion of mine so i you know i i do love it i i love football but um I probably it's quite similar to being maybe a professional footballer i would say at this point so people see the um last minute champions league winners um you know scoring a goal in the 90th minute to you know to win a game in front of thousands of people and all the glamorous lifestyle that goes with that but actually there's so much hard work um that goes on behind the scenes mm. i'm very fortunate to work with some extremely dedicated people and have done throughout my career um so yeah it, there are so many challenges um that you probably wouldn't expect and that people don't generally see they see 90 minutes maybe on a saturday or sunday monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday night whatever it is now <laughs> um but they don't see the hard work and effort um that goes on behind that so yeah i would say it is a real challenge and there's days when you know you you are exceptionally challenged but you really want to get out of bed and help people each day mm. and what does your role look like day to day sort of operations manager Can you give us a little flavor a little insight yeah so day to day i'll probably oversee um everything off the pitch i would say um so we've got a fantastic coaching team um and we're very fortunate to have some um, really talented young men, young players. Um, so, so my role exceptionally is to probably ensure that they have everything that they need um, to be able to do their job easier. So again, for the players, supporting the players however we can. Now, understand they won't all be professional footballers, but we want them to, to leave the club or when I've been over in the women's game, the, the women want to leave them as a better person um, than when they've come on in. Just however we can shape that person, um, because that's the most important thing, is shaping the person first and foremost. Um, but yeah, overseeing anything from transport, kits, um, communication to parents, player registrations, um, anything from finance um management team meetings multidisciplinary team meetings so it's so, a uh, probably a varied range from arranging fixtures ensuring we've got match officials you know just probably everything from there no two days are the same by the sounds of it 
Um, no, I think you don't know what you're going to walk into, probably as in most roles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I'm really interested in, Paul, right, is where would you start on the journey of helping someone to develop personally? Like, is there a particular starting point or is it completely dependent on the person that you're working with? So, for example, is there a system where you sit down with someone for the first time and say, right, this is where we're starting and it leads from there? Or, again, is it just completely up to, you know, who that person is sat in front of you? It's, it probably varies from person to person. Um, firstly, I probably would want to know their why, why they do things. Why they do what they want to do, um, what their passion is, effectively. Um, that's always a really good starting point for me. It, and some people really struggle to kind of find that or talk about that. So it's probably opening that up. Um, again, there is no one way to go into because you'll you may go into um, a conversation with someone who needs help in a, or assistance in a certain area. So that area is never kind of um, easy to kind of find at first. So mm. Just finding that area and finding that niche to see how you can help that person. And do, do you find that when you speak to footballers about what their why is, that they're able to articulate that? Or is it, do you tend to get answers along the lines of, I just love it, or, you know, I just want to do it? Yeah, I think most footballers just want to be footballers. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, it probably sounds a bit of a, a, a niche, but yeah, F footballers see one thing or young people see one thing or young players see one thing they you know just want to go out and yeah play football they don't realize that you know there is an alternative pathway and i think that's something that you have to be really um really probably um, astute in pro in processing with them is to always talk about the alternative pathway and whether it be um, probably from the very, very start when they come on in. Because the reality of football numbers and football players being professionals, you'll note that the percentages are so small. So it's really being honest and having honest conversations with them really early on um, to try and prepare them for life without football, because whether they leave after... Um, whether they leave it under 12s level or whether they leave after 50 professional games um, or a full career after 10 years, the likelihood is they're going to have to have an alternative career, an alternative plan after that. Because hopefully we all live um, very long in um, enjoyable lives. So you need to prepare them for, for life outside that. Because I know the percentages of people leaving the professional game um, in terms of where they go after that um, is very, very challenging. Quite similar to the military, I believe. Yeah.
And are you starting to see the fruits of, or I mean, maybe not even starting to see, but have been seeing for some time, the fruits of the shakeup in the academy system that kind of came in over a decade ago now when the EPPP was introduced and the audit points and that kind of thing. I mean, you know, have you, what's your take on that, Paul? So I think the EPPP was a, a really exciting time um, for football, effectively. Um, it was probably scrutinised and um, you're now seeing probably a very different type of player that we were producing um, maybe 10, 15 years ago. You're probably seeing a very different game. Um, there's a lot more sports science involved. Um, players are definitely of a different um, athletic um probably makeup I would say and there's a lot more coaching involved um you would see um so the, so the game is very very different and I think um from probably from the success maybe domestically that you're looking at there's been a an awful amount of money sort of invested in that so whereas probably 10 15 years ago you were looking at very limited staff you now have a plethora of staff, basically, um, you know, support staff, whether it be sports psychologists, whether it be um, education support, whether it be player care support, whether it be nutritional support, um, physiotherapy, sports therapists. There's, you know, individually so many more different um, support networks, which is really exciting for the player. Mm. And for I did a really terrible job of in, introducing that question, just calling the E Triple P. I mean, there might be a, a a huge number of people out there listening to this who have no idea what I was referring to. So that is the Elite Player Performance Plan, right? And could you just give us a little flavour, Paul, of what that actually involves and what it entails? Um, <laughs> sorry, <if laughs> it's, a <laughs> it's a very um, difficult um, question, I would say. But yeah, the, the elite player performance pathway um, plan as such is um, designed to, to to take a player through different stages of development um, to give them individual support to probably um, clock exactly how many hours um, they're actually being involved within the game. Whereas I'm sure most people are probably aware, or if you're not. Um, there was a study many years ago to say 10,000 hours of studying of anything would um, not essentially make you a master in something, but would give you ultra improvement in any any skill you did. Um, so by clocking the amount of you know footballing hours or contact time that players get, it's looking how many hours they will get on that player clock, um, how much exposure they'll get from sports science, getting, you know, all areas of development um, included to hopefully make a make a person first and foremost, but hopefully make a, a, a better player than that. 
I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Shaping Champions podcast. Thank you again for listening. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Shaping Champions Podcast. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to discuss anything with us, make any suggestions or offer up any guests that you'd like us to interview, please do contact us on any of our social channels or email us on shapingchampions at outlook.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. How is the the system of uh, of academy football at, at Bristol you know i mean have you i'm i'm guessing that you that you have but have you had to sit down and have difficult conversations with players parents um you know and 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 how does that sort of unfold and how do you deal with those kind of challenges so I said it's probably difficult conversations every day um with, with players, um, with parents. Um, so we're very fortunate as as a club, but obviously there's different categories within the academy and in the Triple P. Um, so that goes from probably category one um, down to sort of three or four. Um, category one basically will have, will be made most of the Premier League clubs, which have, an entourage of um, staff, whereas category two and category three won't have as much um, funding and don't have as many staff. Uh, it doesn't say that they're they're any different or you know any more or less exposed, but yeah, they, they've um, they hold different challenges. So sorry to got I've got a bit off topic then, but to go back to your original sort of point and original question, I um, mean, yeah, difficult um, conversations happen each day um there's no best way to have these conversations mm. um that you find i think being really honest as early as you can so almost um you're preparing the player if you do your reviews right so you would have a multidisciplinary review um an informal one every six weeks and a formal one every sort of 12 weeks. Um, and if you're preparing the parents and the player right at each of those reviews, they they will get an understanding of where they are. Um, so as I say, as soon as they come on in, you're preparing them for the exit. You're preparing them for an alternative pathway. You continually um, be honest and consistent at reviews to hopefully prepare them for those um, eventual conversations but there is no easy way it's making them probably hold the decision and some people may want a face-to-face communication some people prefer to have the news in their own home so it's working around with the player um, and supporting them through their alternative pathway because it is a really challenging conversation mm. and I've not met one person within the game yet that that enjoys those conversations hmm. but they, they they've gone in it to develop young people and they've gone in it to to help young people so they just really want what's best for the young person and their family sure yeah and it sounds like you have to be accommodating adaptable flexible um, and like you say, try and meet the needs of 
the player that you're working with and um i guess you know emotional needs and um yeah bearing all of that kind of stuff in mind i guess yeah i think each individual person um has completely different needs um completely different support completely different backgrounds mm. um we're seeing probably i think more players now um that have sort of more additional needs or more different needs than we've not experienced previously so maybe Eng not english is a first language um for certain players for certain parents um which brings its own challenges um in terms of communication um i think everything's moved to a more digital kind of age where we communicate a lot um digitally whether it be via phone whether it be via computers and some people don't have access to that in their family home and some people don't have um access to um football kit football boots which is what where you know current club i'm at we're, we're very fortunate um we, we've got a sort of a hardship fund where we can support these players on a number of different ways um but yes some people um have split families and that also brings more challenges as well um you know there's transport needs and, and like where i'm at the moment as i say we're, we're very fortunate we we're able to help or assist as best that we can and try and be as flexible and as adaptable to support the player at this point I think you're, what you're highlighting is that there are so many areas of consideration that I don't think people would even be aware of, you know, that, that sort of come with this role and the kind of work that you're doing and the work that the academy does and the football club does. Um, just want to sort of talk a little bit about your work in women's football as well, Paul. So firstly, have you noticed through your experience that the pro like does the process of personal development differ between the genders you know or is it predominantly the same um good question so when i was first involved um in the women's game um it was part of the basically the first professional um league or the former of the wsl right. uh, and at that time, um, it was really growing. Or it, was a, it was almost starting out, I should say, probably. Um, and at that point, you know, teams were just beginning to go professional. Mm. But we had a number of women at the time, uh, and girls, obviously, um, coming up through the sort of the, the younger age groups in the academy systems that had full-time jobs that had other jobs that we're relying on. And, you know, they found it a real challenge to sort of leave their full-time jobs or a real stable income at that point to go and probably take or looking at taking a pay cut um, come and become involved in that, which is like, I'm really thankful the women game, women's game has grown beyond um, all expectations, which is fantastic to see. So, yeah, you were probably given slightly different advice to, to, to women um, at the time. 
but it, it certainly has grown um and that's really exciting to see especially with um the attendances um the standards the investment so yeah that, that's um that's a real positive but yeah you you were there were different um certainly different challenges in the women's game than there were in the men's game mm. and so am i right in thinking that you were general manager at liverpool women's that's that correct right? Yeah, yeah. So I want to sort of put the shoe on the other foot a little bit here because we we sometimes or we have had female guests on the podcast working in the men's game, and we often ask them like, you know, what is it like for a female working in a, a male-dominated landscape? So what was it like for you, Paul, going into you know the, the female field and as a, as a male and, and, and especially some, something that was really new and fresh and just getting started up. So I think it was a really exciting role at the time. Um, be, be almost being given the opportunity to potentially shape, um, shape the women's game going forward. Um, and also pr predominantly, um, start up and try and grow a football club because they a lot of clubs were in their very infancy and th th that was really exciting um but yeah there was certain uh, <laughs> there was certain challenges in terms of going into uh going into the women's game um but it was yeah it was something i thoroughly enjoyed and something like it, the experiences that you got through through that and the challenges you had I think really shaped you and helped you learn um helped you understand as well their challenges that they had maybe um and they as I said they were very different challenges from from sort of the males game was there anything that you did take away from from that period of, of time you know any sort of one nugget that you were like wow that's a real gem and that that's going to serve me well as I as I move forward. I think I took a, I took so much from it, um, yeah. like yeah. I'm just trying to think of one real one that would probably stick out. Um, I think when I when I first moved to to Liverpool, effectively, um, and I think within the space of maybe two or three weeks, we were coming towards the end of um, one season. And within two or three weeks, um, the manager um, had left or uh, the night he was going. A number of players were going. Um, physiotherapy, uh, the physiotherapist had, um, was on her way. Um, she was going. Um, yeah, so th there was so many changes over such a short period of time. I sort of walked into thinking, what have I walked into here? Uh, but the, I think that's a challenge of a football club. They are ever evolving. They are ever challenging. And yeah, you do tend to find that once uh, maybe a staff member leaves, they tend to take a number of staff or a number of players with them, especially with such short contracts in the women's game, which were very different probably from the, from the men's game. Sure. 
So I was having a, a conversation with my partner last night, who's a secondary school teacher. And, um, you know, I've got a background of working with young people as well, sort of extensively. And we were just discussing the challenges that young people are facing in this day and age. And it was the list just went on and on and on, you know. Um, and and so it kind of, it's... Um, trying to think of the word it, it it brought me to this question i'm about to ask you now i guess um which is what are the biggest challenges that you see facing young aspiring sports people or the one biggest challenge if there is one see there's a number of different challenges that probably we faced from sort of growing up everything now is probably um sort of judged or done on the phone so say for example i'm i'm fortunate to have some young nephews and younger cousins and they're constantly up on technology hmm. um so everything they do is glued upon technology and they're constantly checking their phone for likes um everything is social media based everything is image based um, so people are more concerned about um, how they probably appear with filters and parts and that than, than rather than concentrating on probably, um, I wouldn't say the real world, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, just like maybe personal relationships. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if people, uh, uh, don't get me wrong, I, I don't know, but I'm not sure if people sit down for dinner as a family anymore and discuss what day they've had in, you know, discuss challenges together or whether, you know, one's sat on the computer, one's on the phone and you're not having those conversations that, that I certainly grew up with and probably people of my era grew up with, um, that I felt stood us in such good stead through the time. And I think where is, and, Again, they could be wrong, but when you went to school um, or when you're out, there was a time when you could just come home and switch off and not have to think about things for the rest of the day. But now we're constantly in a environment or you can expose yourself to an environment, certainly where people are constantly on at you, constantly, um, say, for example, if people are being bullied, they can't get away from it because it's on their social media. Um, they're constantly thinking about that and constantly being harassed potentially. So th that's a real challenge. And I think we've probably got a number of people who now are involved in um, maybe physical and more um, emotional health kind of um, challenges, I would say, as we go through. Yeah, I think you're so right. Really resonates what you're saying, Paul, you know, um, particularly that sort of state of stimulation that young people can get caught in and it's constant, it's never ending. Um, there's not an off switch. And it really interesting you mentioned that about sitting around the table. You know, I, I always sort of remember that as kind of like 
a safe battleground in a way because you could have debate and you could challenge each other but you always knew it was you know it was all going to come back to a, a nice kind of sensible place and um yeah i'm just not sure that that young people have access to to as much of that certainly from what i'm seeing um just um last few questions really before we wrap up you look like you've had a busy day paul to be fair um <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's really kind of you to come and take the time out to speak to us. But um, I don't wanna I don't wanna keep you well into the night. But what are the commonalities that you see amongst academy players that thrive and excel? And when I say commonalities, I mean like perhaps personal attributes as opposed to technical or physical ones. I think the uh, initial one for, for, for everybody is probably hard work. You know, you you what you give absolutely everything in every training session to improve, to be better, to be a student of the game, effectively to learn from others, to listen to advice. They tend to find that those are the players that will get on that practice, practice, practice. Um, that makes a huge difference in their probably in their development. I would say. Can you teach young players that? Is that coachable or do you find that that is intrinsic? Uh, good, good question. Is it, is it intrinsic or to so some people or some players have it at a very young age and, and really work hard at a very, very young age and play, listen, coach, and then you'll find other players that it takes a little longer to probably adapt. Um, obviously, you know, adolescence and puberty is a, a big thing, isn't it, for, for young players and young people. And people develop at different rates and different ages. People have had different experiences in their life. Some um, react to adverse um you know, events happen in our life in a different way than others. Some use it as a real, probably a real tool or a real, um, real thing to push on and focus on. Um, others don't look at it the same way. So maybe look at it as more, right, said we're victim, but maybe like that and, and take it against them. So I think it, it, it can be like, can it be taught? Can it not be? I would probably use the the, the the Michael Jordan example at this point and try and think, you know, from from his point of view. So he never made a basketball team in terms of in in college, and was told by his coach, um, from what I believe, that. He would only go if he came and practiced with him one-on-one -on -one, day in day out and he did that and i'm not sure michael johnson um michael jordan had that before um but he certainly got his head down worked hard and was ultra successful but then you take it on years into his story and the next time you you hear of him is when he failed again or when you know, he hit tough times again and then realised he had to work harder. 
and harder again. And I think that's the same with everybody in their life, whether it be young players, whether that be people. You will fail um, in whatever you do. But you have to fail to learn. And you have to give people that safety to fail to grow and develop. Yeah, we don't really talk about uh, failure enough, do we? Or perhaps in the right context or the right terms. Um, and what what I see is the, you know, you have those sports people that have an undeniable gift or talent and it, and it seems natural and they can coast and they'll make it to a certain level. But those that make it to the top and remain at the top for a considerable amount of time have got both, haven't they? They've got talent and they've got this, this just incredible work rate, ethic, um, desire, hunger, drive, passion, you know, and it's, it's, it's that combination, isn't it? I guess. Um, yeah. I, I agree. I would go back to the, to, to the hours of practice again. So probably the ones that have um, developed or showed really early signs have had a lot of hours of practice. Mm. Um, that they then don't progress because they don't continue that practice. Whereas other players will catch up by continuing in those areas of practice, developing themselves, going away learning, um, going and improving, and just constantly improving and constantly developing. That's really interesting. So you do come across some players who work really hard, but then they plateau because they just, they, they ease off and they don't keep that consistency of practice. Yeah, I think you have that and don't you have the difference between um, maturation because you tend to get a, a couple of players that are really early maturers. Um, so physically, they're probably bigger, stronger, and they get really easy success mm. through just physical strength, which in short, doesn't always develop them. So potentially if you look at, I'll, I'll use a football example of sort of uh, maybe a Lionel Messi who wasn't the biggest, wasn't the physically strongest, so had to find a different way to try and um, succeed. And I think if you look at, at, at various different players, they've all had to um, go through some really adverse times and it's just how they've kind of negotiated them to to gain success. Yeah, I've, li I've listened to interviews with um, several really successful footballers over the last kind of couple of years. And the one common theme um, that's been amongst or like majority of them is that they played with older children when they were playing football in parks or on the streets. They, you know, they didn't have a choice. They had to. And like you've just alluded to there, they, they had to find a way, you know, or they were going to get bullied or, you know, just pushed over, steamrolled over even. Um, so yeah, really, really interesting one. I mean, it's been a, it's been such a fascinating conversation, Paul. It really has. And I've just got one question to wrap things up. When it comes to developing self or helping others to develop, is there one central theme that everything else stem, stems from? So, for example, could you say, like, the golden rule of personal development is? 
or is there, are there just too many things to try and condense into into one? I think there there probably is too many to to probably um, to, to, to actually um, say. I would think I, I would always look at um, always be willing to learn, always be looking to develop, um, read, watch. Um, everybody has a different learning style. Everybody learns through different ways. Um, whether it be teaching, whether it be learning, whether it be mirroring, whether it be shadowing, whether it be, but I, I think there's the one key thing I would probably say, actually come back to that now is there are experts that have already trod your path that have been in your field. Um, go and find them. There'll be mentors that will be able to assist you um and they will be able to give you golden nuggets and tips but essentially you'll find your own way so you'll pick probably the best tips from certain people and go and find your own way love that it's a fantastic way to wrap up the conversation it sounds like curiosity is perhaps a key word in all of that um paul it's been fabulous to have you on on the podcast where can people connect with you if they want to or reach out to you if, if they want to ask any questions or maybe, you know, just contact you in general? Yep. So upon LinkedIn, um, it's probably the best way to contact me. Um, again, if anyone has any questions, I'd be really happy to answer anything. Um, if there's any way I can help anybody, again, from my experience, uh, I'd love to be able to do that. Amazing stuff. Thanks ever so much again, Paul. And to everyone listening or watching out there, please do subscribe to us on wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's audio-based or whether you're watching us on YouTube, please do subscribe on the channel. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time.